I appreciate your being here tonight, and uh, we had a wonderful afternoon class, well attended. In fact, we had several folks back that have been out for sickness, and so it was nice to see that uh, place filled up once again. Praise the Lord. We're going to be this evening in Genesis, and uh, again, toward the very beginning, still in chapter 1, and uh, let's see here. Let me get open to it with you. And we had a fun time studying it today. So I trust, I trust we'll do the same thing tonight. Yes, okay, good, 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 good. Let me read for you just the first verse here in, in uh, Genesis 1.28, and then we'll pray and get into tonight's lesson. Verse 28, And God blessed them, and God said unto them, Be fruitful, and multiply, and replenish the earth, and subdue it, and have dominion over the fish of the sea, and over the fowl of the air, and over every living thing that moveth upon the earth. Well, I'm excited tonight to teach you this lesson, so let's pray and ask God to meet with us. Thank you, dear Lord, for your love. Thank you for giving to us this most amazing book in Genesis. And Lord, we are we're at a loss apart from your help tonight. So would you quicken our minds? Lord, I pray that you might help us to understand this book and the truths you have for us tonight in a much clearer way. And we'll thank you for it, for we love you in Jesus' name. Amen. My heart and my mind has been enlarged because of my study in Genesis. Again, every time I go back and do a deep dive into Genesis, it gets bigger. What, what gets bigger is my understanding of God. God gets bigger. We serve an incredibly powerful God. And tonight, we're going to be looking at various aspects of His creation. We've been waiting for this. Um, finally, we get to God's creation of man. And so, number five, if you're taking notes, is man was blessed and commissioned by God. He was blessed and commissioned by God. Under that, letter A is man's blessings. And I'll be surprised if we could not fill up most of the hour if I opened the, the floor up to people's blessings. Blessings that God gives to us. I named just a few here. But nature around us, we live in Colorado. We are full of the blessings of nature out here. Good things of life. God's presence, and of course, God's presence was first uh, exemplified in the garden itself as Adam walked with God. Communion with God. He walked and talked and they spoke. And then power to create is a blessing. My wife this afternoon when I got home was on the phone to my daughter Katie and they were talking as they talk frequently. Every day they're on the phone either by FaceTime or talking on the phone or, or one way or another communicating. Why? Because she wants our youngest grandchild to be very much a part of our lives. And so every day they're talking and showing pictures of him and it's wonderful. We would not have that experience if we didn't have children. And having children procreating is one of God's blessings, and it's talked about here right at the very beginning of the Bible in verse 28. There's blessings to God's blessing and commissioning. Letter B is man's commission. Man's commission. So in verse 28, God said, here's what I want you to do, man. I want you to be fruitful and multiply and replenish and subdue and have dominion. 
So number one is reproduce to fill the earth. It's interesting, this word replenish. When we think of the word replenish, we think of going back to the refrigerator to fill something that you emptied. You had a glass of a soft drink. It's empty. I need to replenish it. I go back to the refrigerator, open the door, and I replenish it. But that's not what this particular word means. This word simply means to fill. Not a refill, just a fill. Why? Because the earth was not full. It had not been full. So he wants him to fill the earth. Um, man's fears, quite frankly, of overpopulation are unwarranted. God designed the earth to be perfectly balanced because he's a perfect God. That means that if man had not sinned, let me ask you a question. If Adam, man, had never sinned, then how old would Adam have been when he died? He wouldn't have died. He'd still be living. Now, it's hard to comprehend. But God made man to continue living. He put in him the systems of replenishing, if you will. So if you cut yourself, God made it so that that would heal itself. Well, now, sin changed all of that. And sin brought death into the world. Well, now, you think God is so dumb that in his creation, he said, well, I, I'm going to make man to be able to live forever and to procreate, but I'm not going to give him a world big enough to sustain him. Well, of course not. God knew ahead of time, and so God created a perfectly balanced world. But he did also know that man would sin, and that death would be the result of that sin. Man has a responsibility to rule over God's creation, and therefore provide management of crops and food supplies to sustain whatever population does exist. Number two is subdue the earth. To subdue the earth. The word means to dominate or to bring into subjection. Left to itself, the earth would grow chaotic. God created it to, be, to need a keeper, and therein came man's role of having dominion. He made the earth and he made all the plants of the earth. But if he would have not had a keeper, that would have overgrown. And so, so, so God made man and put him in the garden to keep it. Letter D, letter D is food. It's food. Number one, man's first food. <laughs> man's first food. We chuckle because my grandson, one of his first foods, my daughter Katie is so good, such a good mom, but she takes vegetables into this kind of a food processor thing and she she processes them down and, and, and makes them. So you take green beans and puts in there and processes it down, feeds them green beans and feeds them squash and feeds them all these things that she, she puts in the processor there. And, and some things he likes, some things he doesn't, and some, some things he spits out. And strangely enough, he's a texture person, so he doesn't like things with texture. Bananas. She doesn't like the feel of bananas for some reason, so he spits bananas out. I'm not sure why. But does just, he's, he's, got, he's got a texture feel to him. What was man's first food? Well, verse 29 tells us, And God said, Behold, I have given you every herb bearing seed, which is upon the face of all the earth, and every tree in the which is the fruit of a tree yielding seed. To you it shall be for meat or for food. 
Originally, a man was made to eat a vegetarian diet. He had the privilege of eating fruits and vegetables in their most perfect state. Can you imagine what it must have been like in the garden? I mean, I, I love having fruits like the, the Palisade oranges, uh, peaches. We lived at Grand Junction for a while, and so it was so fun because we were not too far away, and the orchards, and you had those, those fresh, fresh uh, peaches. And they're the kind of peaches that as, as they come close to your mouth, all, you're already salivating, you know, and, and you get close, and it just you barely touches, and the juice starts coming out, and it's just all over you, and it's so fresh and refreshing. Well, I guarantee you for sure, that incredible peach pales in comparison to the peaches that Adam ate in the garden. Incredible, incredible fruits that he had. This verse restates God's provision for reproduction in plant life. Plants would produce seeds to provide for the next crop. Fruit trees would produce fruit with seeds that could be planted to grow into new fruit trees. I'd sometimes take that peach and I would suck on the pit of that, the seed of the, of the peach. And I'd be there just not thinking about it, and it would end up on the side of my cheek. So I got this peach pit on the side of my cheek, just sucking away on it. Well, you know, you take that thing out, it's about that big, approximately. And to understand that inside that pit, or that seed, is the DNA for another tree. The ability to, to, uh, to go into the earth and to die and to have a, the, the plant come out of that, turn into a tree itself that produces more trees. And God placed into that seed that incredible ability. Number two is food for the animals. Food for the animals. Verse 30, and to every beast of the earth and to every fowl of the air and to everything that creepeth upon the earth wherein there is life, I have given every green herb for meat. And it was so. All land animals and birds were originally vegetarian. Now, that's probably not a surprise to you, a lot of for a lot of you, but for me, it's it's, it's funny when you think of saber-toothed tigers. You think of these wild animals, and to think instead of them originally eating flesh, they were originally eating plants. Um, Probably shouldn't surprise me. Bears, a large portion of a bear's diet is are berries, um, small plants, seeds that they eat. Letter E, everything was very good. In verse 31, God saw everything that he had made, and behold, it was very good. And the evening and the morning were the sixth day. God was very pleased and the completed work of creation. And I chuckle at this. God thought that his work was really good. God thought, this is really good. And my first reaction is kind of funny. It's a funny reaction until I realize we are made in God's image. And when we work really hard and complete a finished product, what do we do? We stand back, we look at it, that's what God did. He stood back, looked at creation. Hmm, that's really good. <laughs> I did a good job. Well, of course he did a good job. He's God. But God appreciates his work. Isn't that interesting? God appreciates his work. We appreciate it when we work hard and it comes out good. We're made in God's image. 
For uh, Psalm 104, verse 31 says, The glory of the Lord shall endure forever. Listen, the Lord shall rejoice in his works. I think it's great. The Lord shall rejoice in his works. Now we get to day seven. Events of day seven, Genesis 2, verse 1 and 2. Thus the heavens and the earth were finished, and all the host of them. And on the seventh day, God ended his work which he had made, and he rested on the seventh day from all his work which he had made. So letter A is God completed creation. He completed creation. He finished his work of creation in six days. On the seventh, his work being complete, he ceased creating. Or the Bible says he rested from his work of creation. The idea here suggesting is not that God says, Whoa, I'm dog tired. Boy, did you see what I did? Did you see the stars that I made? Did you see this earth that I made? Wow, man, what a pain creating him. I'm, I'm really, no, it's not that he was tired. It simply means he ceased. He stopped. He was doing all this, now he stopped. He rested from doing what he was doing there. Day seven was a celebration. Hallelujah. Look what I did. In a way, it pointed to another finished work of God that he would perform many years later. For on the cross, God would say, it is finished. Hebrews 4, 2 and following, For unto us was the gospel preached, as well as unto them. But the word preached did not profit them, not being mixed with faith in them that heard it. For we which have believed do enter into rest. As he said, As I have sworn in my wrath, if they shall enter into my rest, although the works were finished from the foundation of the world. For he spake in a certain place of the seventh day on this wise, and God did rest the seventh day from all his works. Letter B. God set apart the seventh day. What's a Bible word for being set apart? What? Yes, sanctified. Sanctified. That's one Bible word for being set apart. And look at verse 3. And God blessed the seventh day and sanctified it, because that in it, he had rested from all his work, which God created and made. God declared that the seventh day would be set apart from all the rest. It would be unique and be separate. It was a pause to reflect on all of his creative acts. The seventh day was set apart by God for himself initially. He set apart. You know what? I'm just going to look. I'm just going to look and see what I did. This is incredible. I'm just going to admire this. The seventh day initially was set apart for God to appreciate his work. Later, he would pass along this special day to Israel in the form of the Sabbath day. In Exodus 20, verse 8, God said, Remember the Sabbath day to keep it holy. Six days shalt thou labor. Why did he tell them six days? Because that's what he did. He worked for six days. And then he rested to do all thy work. Verse 10, but the seventh day is the Sabbath of the Lord thy God. In it thou shalt not do any work, thou, nor thy son, nor thy daughter, thy manservant, nor thy maidservant, nor thy cattle, nor thy stranger that is within thy gates. For in six days the Lord made heaven and earth, 
the sea, and all that in them is, and rested the seventh day. Wherefore the Lord blessed the Sabbath day and hallowed it. So I've got a question for you. The command is you may not work on the Sabbath day. What is work? Define it for me. Effort. Okay. Not bad. Somebody else? What is work? Somebody this afternoon said a pain. Getting out of bed. Somebody said that too. Did you? Yeah, yeah, somebody out of bed. That's right. What is work? Doing something for yourself. Okay. The honest, simple truth is, man has struggled with that definition. Now, God said, do not do it. But what is it? It is work. Well, let me tell you what the Jews interpreted this as. One, one commentary writes this, but by the time that Jesus trod the earth, the Jews had decided that to carry a loaf of bread from one house to another broke the Sabbath. Carrying a loaf of bread was work. That to extinguish a lamp was work. That it was permissible to lift a child. But if the child had a stone in his hand, the mother had broken the Sabbath because she just worked. It was permissible to look in a mirror, but to see a white hair and pull it out was work. That to scatter two seeds was sowing and therefore work. That to pluck a blade of grass was work. That to lift a dried fig was to lift a burden and therefore was work and a desecration of the Sabbath. Does it sound like they went a little too far? <laughs> Which is exactly why Jesus came unglued. He turned the Sabbath day upside down because they had taken it and made it all fleshly. It's all fleshly. And by the way, the very ones that emphasized this and tried enforcing it, the Pharisees, were some of the greatest offenders of this. They made it so it was almost impossible to keep, to keep it, and yet in their own lives, they, did, they broke it all the time. Number 13, a review of creation. A review of creation. So in chapter 1, he gave us the, 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 the generalities of creation. Here's what he did. He created this, and then this, and then this, and then this, and then this. In chapter 2, he looks back and gives a kind of a review of it, letter A. He divided by generations. By generations. Notice verse 4. These are the generations of the heavens and the earth when they were created, in the day that the Lord God made the earth and the heavens. So he called that a generation. The generations of the heavens and the earth. Now, number one, he takes these, which are divisions, sections, if you will, we're going to see, sections, and he segments them by family names, number one. He segments them by family names. This little phrase, these are the generations, it's a title used throughout the book of Genesis. And it breaks it into sections. So every time you see that phrase, these are the generations, you see a new, a, a, a new episode is coming or a, a new division is coming. 
the uh, different reasons for the breakdown are, are, have been suggested, but God is ultimately behind those divisions. He seems, and I'm going to give them to you in just a moment, but he seems to emphasize a particular family under each division. Let me give you the divisions. In Genesis 6, 9, it reads, these are the generations of Noah. In Genesis 10, 1, these are the generations of the sons of Noah, Shem, Ham, and Japheth. In Genesis 11:10, these are the generations of Shem. In Genesis 11:27, these are the generations of Terah. In Genesis 25:12, these are the generations of Ishmael. Genesis 25:19, uh, these are the generations of Isaac. In Genesis 36, 1 and 9, these are the generations of Esau. And then in Genesis 7, 37, 2, these are the generations of Jacob. So we're talking about Noah, Noah's sons, Shem, Terah, Ishmael, Isaac, Esau, and Jacob. These are family names. And the book of Genesis is broken up by these family names. But number two, first in the list of generations. And this is interesting. First in the list, however, was Genesis 2 and verse 4. So the first time this phrase is used is in Genesis 2 and verse 4. These are the generations of the heavens and the earth when they were created. Every other one describes a family name. But the first time it describes God's creation of the heavens and the earth. Here, the family of God's creation is mentioned. God called his creation a family. Chapter 2 summarizes the more detailed account of creation found in chapter 1. And that starts letter B. A new name for God is introduced. A new name for God is introduced. In verse number 4, chapter 2, last part of the verse, the day that the Lord God made the earth and the heavens. So, number one is the original name for God. Verse number one, Genesis 1, 1. In the beginning, God created. What was the Hebrew name for God in verse one? No, not, not, first one, not the first verse. In Genesis 1, 1, in the beginning, God. Anybody know the Hebrew name for God there? Ah, that's right. Elohim. Elohim and his creation, and number one. Elohim and his creation, number one. In chapter one, Elohim created the heavens and the earth. Do you remember anything about the name Elohim? I've mentioned it a time or two. Remember anything about it? It took us a while this afternoon. I had to kind of prime the pump. <laughs> Elohim is the plural name for God. Plural name. It suggests more than one. Well, we know that God is one God. But we also know that He is three in one. God the Father, God the Son, God the Holy Spirit. So He refers to Him in the plural. We are, we are one. Father, Son, the Holy Spirit. God's work of creation was first introduced by His plural name, suggesting all three parts of the Trinity. In Genesis 1.26, and God, Elohim, said, let us make man 
in our image after our likeness. So it sounds like a board meeting. So it's God the Father, God the Son, God the Holy Spirit. They meet together for a board meeting. Let, okay, let's, let's, let us make man in our image. Letter B, there's something else about Elohim that's important that you understand. Elohim is known as God is the strong one. When you hear the word Elohim, you think of plural, but you also think of the strong one. God is the strong one. Why? Because it's the creator God name. He's the creator God name, the, the, the strong one. He spoke and the worlds were made. That's a powerful God. That's a strong God. He made everything that is in six days. That's a powerful God. Elohim is known as the strong one, the creator God, used in Genesis 1.1. When God told Abraham that his seed would inherit the land of Canaan, he said he would be their Elohim, their God. After Joseph had endured so many hard trials, God fulfilled his master plan in him, elevating him to second in command in Egypt. When Joseph revealed his identity to his brothers in Egypt, he told them that Elohim, God, sent him me before you to preserve you. Why? Because he's the strong God. He had it all in his hands. When it was time to deliver the man, time to deliver to man, the commandments. It was Elohim that spake all these words. Exodus 20 verse 1, thou shalt have no other gods before me. Guess who said that? Elohim said that. God, the powerful one, the strong one. Number two, Jehovah and his redemption of man. Now, I just let the cat out of the bag, but the second name introduced in the Bible after Elohim is Jehovah or Yahweh. And here we see it, we tie his name to redemption. First of all, letter A, Jehovah in the Bible is God's personal name. God's personal name. I'm known by several names here. When I walk in, I'll hear me, myself called by different names. Some call me Pastor Owler. Some call me Pastor Dan. Some call me Dan. I've got one that calls me Mr. <laughs> Some call me, hey, weird one. Just whatever happens to be, they call me. So I'm known by different names here. But the, when I go home, my wife doesn't call me Pastor. <laughs> she has a personal name. She calls me. Um, the personal name of God is Jehovah. In chapter 2's review, God's name used is Jehovah, his personal name. Tied to Jehovah's name are the redemptive acts of God in Jesus Christ. Jehovah is expressive of his being and perfections, especially his eternality and immutability. And I don't want to scare you with that, but what's immutability mean? Unchangeable. Never changes. It's immutable. He is everlasting and never changing. He is the I am, which is and was and is to come. It's interesting that when the Jews went into captivity in Babylon, during that time, they were forced to speak different language. They were not allowed to speak their native Hebrew during that time. And for 70 years, they were in bondage in Babylon. Now, most of the Jews, after that bondage, chose to stay in Babylon. Only a remnant went back. So over time, 
Hebrew no longer became the conversant language. The names of God were no longer heard audibly. And I'm told that the name Jehovah, they forgot how to pronounce it accurately. And because they knew there was a commandment, thou shalt not use the name of the Lord thy God in vain. You can't use it in vain. And because they were so fearful of that, they chose to never speak that word. So every time they'd be reading the Bible, and the Bible said the word Jehovah, they would substitute another name for God, Adonai. So they would out loud say Adonai, even though it says here Jehovah, because they would never wanted to be guilty of using the name of the Lord in vain. So the name Jehovah was a very special name to the Jews. It is this personal name. Letter B. God's change of focus. God's change of focus. I want you, if you're, if you're following along your Bible, I want you to take and put your finger on Genesis 1-1. And then I want you to turn over and put your finger on Genesis 2 and verse 4. So just those, those two verses, Genesis 1-1 and Genesis 2 and verse 4. Just so I don't lose it, I want to make sure I'm reading it right. <laughs> okay. Okay. Read with me Genesis 1 1. Ready? In the beginning, God created the heaven and the earth. Okay? Go over now to Genesis 2 and verse 4. All right, for me. Wait, wait for me. Ready? Genesis. 2, 4. These are the generations of the heavens and the earth when they were created. Notice, in the day that the Lord God made the earth and the heavens. In the day the Lord God made the what? Earth and the heavens. In Genesis 1, 1, in the beginning of this verse, it says the heavens and the earth. In the end of the verse, it says the earth and the heavens. Why did he switch? Why did he go from heavens and earth to earth and heavens? What did God do at the end of each stage of creation? He said, it's good. It's good. He took a step back and said, it's good. It's good. It's good. At the end of day six, he stood back and said, it's very good. What's he? He's admiring his work or the heavens and the earth. He's admiring that. But now, come chapter 2 and verse 4, I think what's happened is we've now taken a turn. And God's focus goes from creation to his mighty works to his mighty work, man. And from this point on, you see God's focus is no longer on creation as a whole. His focus is on man. And therein comes the name Jehovah, a personal relationship with man. Um, number one is on his creation under that. Letter B is God's change of focus. Number one is on his creation. First, Genesis 1:31, and God saw everything that he had made, and behold, it was very good, and the evening and the morning were the sixth day. Why? Because now he's looking at creation. That's his focus. But number two, he changes his focus in verse number four to his image bearer, man. On his image bearer, 
man bore the image of God in his image. Chapter 2, the emphasis changes slightly. By giving us his personal redemptive name and by putting the earth before the heavens, God indicates that man has now become his main focus. From that point forward, man will receive the fullness of his attention. In Genesis 5, verse 1, this is the book of the generations of Adam, man. In the day that God created man, in the likeness of God made he him. Now man's going to get his attention, his full and undivided attention. Letter C, a provision for plant life. For plant life. Number five, verse five, and every plant of the field before it was in the earth, and every herb of the field before it grew, for the Lord God had not caused it to rain upon the earth, and there was not a man to till the ground. But there went up a mist from the earth and watered the whole face of the ground. This is one of these stumpers for me. Now I'm going to give you uh, my assumption here, what I think it means, but this is kind of a stumper. I don't know if you caught this. Every plant of the field before it was in the earth. Every herb of the field before it grew. So there is an existence of the plants and the herbs before they're in the ground. Here's what I think. I think created, God created all these various life forms, plants, trees, herbs, plants, and he admired his work before he planted it. I think he made an apple tree. He's holding this apple tree. He's turning around, hmm, that's really cool. That's really a, that's really a good creation. Look at that root structure. And then he planted it and went to an elm tree. Look at that elm tree. Isn't that, wow. Look at that radish. Look at these tomatoes. Wow. And then he planted them. He mentions the plants and the herbs before they go to the ground. Now, maybe there's another explanation. I don't know what it is. So to me, it's, it's, it's just written very uniquely. God then created a watering system. Now, this is before it rained. Initially, it did not rain. Rain comes significantly later. Initially, he watered all these plants and herbs and trees with mist that come out of the ground. Sometimes you'll drive along Lake Loveland, certain kind of uh, 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 weather, and you'll see the mist coming off the lake. Well, imagine that multiplied incredibly, and mist was coming off the ground, and all the plants were being watered by that as in God's original creation. Um, Psalm 104, verse 14 reads, He causeth the grass to grow for the cattle, and herb for the service of man, that he may bring forth food out of the earth. And he made provision for this by watering it. Letter D, a man and his garden. A man and his... How many of you had gardens? A few of you? A garden? Okay. All right. Man and his garden. By the way, having a garden or having one in the past gives you a, a mental understanding of how I'm looking at this. A man and his garden. Now, of course, we're talking about the Garden of Eden here. Verse 7, And the Lord God formed man of the dust of the ground and breathed into his nostrils the breath of life, 
and man became a living soul. So we're going to start with man here. Number one, man comes to life. Man comes to life. So before God breathed into his nostrils, here's just a lifeless body. God created it, a lifeless body that God created. Before he breathed life into it, it's a dead body. Now letter A, God molded man like clay. God took of the materials he had previously created from nothing, which were the heavens and the earth, and the Bible says formed man. It's a different word than created. He formed man, or he went to the minerals he had already created on, on the earth. He took of that which he had already created and formed or made man from those created uh, minerals. Isaiah 64, 8, But now, O Lord, thou art our father. We are the clay, and thou art our potter, and we all are the work of thy hand. God's the potter, we're the clay. He formed man, just like a potter would clay. Letter B, God breathed life into man. God breathed life into man. It says, he breathed into his nostrils the breath of life. Do you know that's not said of the animals? That's only said about man? God did not breathe into the nostrils of the animals. He simply created them with the ability to be alive. But man is unique, and he was created uniquely. Um, in jo Job chapter 33 and verse 4, The Spirit of God hath made me. Spirit. In the New Testament, the word is pneuma, spirit. Pneuma, meaning breath. The breath of God. So when it says God breathed into man. There is a picture of the Holy Spirit coming into man and giving him a life. When I knelt down as an 11-year-old and I put my faith and trust in Jesus Christ, eternal life was breathed into me by the Spirit of God. Same picture here. Verse number, or number three, letter C, I'm sorry. Letter C, God reminded man from where he came. He reminded man from where he came. Adam, or Adama in the Hebrew, Adam. Do you remember what the name Adam means? I said it briefly last week, I think, week before. What's that? Red. Would you, the, ruddy, yeah. It's ruddy or reddish, suggesting the color of the earth from which he was made. Adam, you're earth. Adam, you're dust. Adam, you're clay. Now that's important. God called Adam dirt, basically. Why? Because Adam had the tendency of getting a fat head. Men have a tendency of getting full of themselves and full of pride, full of ego. We think a lot of ourselves. Now, I'm not being disrespectful when I say this. We were made in God's image because God, in a perfect way, is full of himself. And that's a good thing. He's full of himself. He has an enormous ego. He loves it when we praise him. And we're supposed to praise him. 
man thrives on being praised. He eats that up. He enjoys that. Why? Because he was made in God's image. But now where man struggles and God does not, man is to give God the glory. So he is not to keep that. He's to be a channel. And the glory comes to man, and he's to channel that to God. Thank you, God. He's to channel that to God. Thank you, God. God, you're the one that gave me all these abilities. Thank you, God. And God loves it when man becomes that channel. But when man holds on to that, <laughs> and man says, that's my glory. I'm not going to share it. Remember Nebuchadnezzar? Look at this great Babylon which I have made. Well, it wasn't long before Nebuchadnezzar was on the hillside acting like an animal for seven years. God doesn't share his glory. Number two, a lush garden is planted for man. A lush garden is planted for man. And verse 8, And the Lord God planted a garden eastward in Eden, and there he put the man whom he had formed. Now this eastward has caused some problem. What do you mean eastward? You know, no matter where you are on the earth, unless you're on one of the poles, you can always go east. So where was it that he was eastward? Well, letter A, it's a, it's a question of location or time. I'll explain that. This is a, a question of location or time. The word eastward in the Bible usage can also refer to time with usages like before, forward, eternal. God may have been drawing attention to when the garden was planted instead of where. It's also possible. It simply means, Adam, you're here. East of you is where the garden is. Just practically. Just, it's east of you. Letter B is an assortment of trees. Verse 9, And out of the garden made the Lord God to grow every tree that is pleasant to the sight and good for food. The tree of life also is in the midst of the garden and the tree of knowledge of good and evil. Number one, every good and pleasant tree. Letter B is an assortment of trees. Did I give you that? Assortment of trees, okay? Every good and pleasant tree. The trees in the garden were purposely made to please the eyes and taste buds of man. Walking through the garden would have been an unforgettable experience. A place that you go that sets off many trees and, 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 and uses them ornamentally. Is that called an arboretum? Is that what that is? An arboretum? Sounds good. <laughs> okay. I think that's what it is. But you go, I've been to them before. You walk in and there's all these different kind of trees. And they have a little, this little plate there and describe what the tree is and everything. And, and it's, it, they could be beautiful, beautiful things. There are some incredibly gorgeous trees. Can you imagine what the garden's trees were like? Every good and pleasant tree. The fruit off these trees, they were gorgeous. Uh, number two is the tree of life. The tree of life. In Genesis 3.22, I want to get you thinking a little bit here. I'll read the verse, and I want you to think. And the Lord God said, Behold, the man has become as one of us. Of course, we know that uh, man eventually, chapter 3, is going to fall. To know good and evil, and now lest he put forth his hand and take also of the tree of life and eat and live forever. So letter A, we see a tree for life. A tree for life. Now there's two trees. God made all these trees, 
all those pleasant trees. There's two specific trees that God describes, the tree of the knowledge of good and evil and the tree of life. Okay? All these incredible trees, your elm trees, your apple trees, your oak trees, and the knowledge of good and evil and the uh, tree of life. Okay? Those two specific trees he set apart. Prior to the fall, I see no place in the Bible, however, that there is a prohibition from taking of the tree of life. Now, what would the ramifications be, therefore, if before the fall, Adam having freedom to eat of any tree, nothing stopping him, he went over to the tree of life and he ate? What does it suggest that would happen to him then? He would what? Yeah. Sounds like he'd live forever. If he partook of the tree of life before the fall, it sounds like he would have lived forever. But there was no prohibition. Adam, you cannot eat of these two trees. No, no, he didn't say that. One tree, the knowledge of good and evil, you can't eat that one. Never told him he couldn't eat that tree. Now, this is interesting. Made me start thinking here. I want you to think a little bit. I think, prior to the fall, since there's no prohibition, only the tree of knowledge of good and evil, its fruit was likely symbolic of the life given freely to man. After the fall, in man's sinful condition, God prevented him from taking of its fruit to prevent him from living forever in a sin-cursed body. His mercy provided a better way found in the new birth in Christ. Here's what I think. And I have nothing to substantiate this other than what I just read you. I think the tree of life, and we're going to get to the eternal life part in just a minute. The, I think the tree of life was a life-giving tree that you ate it, and its fruit was refreshing and life-giving. And you could go to that tree anytime and be rejuvenated, life-giving. How is it? life-giving by continually going back to that tree and eating that, eating that. Not one time taking, I'm going to live forever. No, the freedom to come and partake of that constantly, which by my constant partaking would enable me to live forever. But I have to continually partake, just like in order for me to live spiritually and to grow spiritually, I have to continually partake in His Word. It's not a one time and I'm done. You don't come one time to church and I unload on you all my knowledge, which wouldn't take long, and you say, I'm done for life, I'm full. No, you keep coming back to the well and keep coming back to the well. Keep coming. I think that the tree of life was such that you, eat, you ate that and it would give you life. But the eternal part is it never stopped offering to you life. Eternally. Now, with that in mind, let her be a reappearing tree of life. A reappearing tree of life. There will be a tree of life again in the New Jerusalem, the Bible says. So, from the time Adam fell and God says, No, you cannot have it, it has disappeared. It's not been here. There, there has not been a tree that we know of on the planet that you can go to and eat and have this kind of eternal life. 
but there will be again in the New Jerusalem. Revelation 2, 7. He that hath an ear, let him hear what the Spirit saith unto the churches. To him that overcometh will I give to eat of the tree of life, which is in the midst of the paradise of God. Revelation 22, 2. In the midst of the street of it, and on either side of the river, was there the tree of life, which bare twelve manner of fruits, and yielded her fruit every month, and the leaves of the tree were for the healing of the nations. The tree of life yielding different kinds of fruits every month, suggesting, I need to go back every month. Yeah, going back, constantly going back to it. Revelation 22, 14, Blessed are they that do His commandments, that they may have right to the tree of life, and may enter in through the gates into the city. What's the prerequisite of eating in the tree of life? Obeying His commandments. What was the commandment of the Father? Trust in my Son. Ah, if I have followed his commandments and am a believer, I can freely eat of the tree of life. Number three, the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. Verse 17, but of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, thou shalt not eat of it. For in the day that thou eatest thereof, thou shalt surely, what? Die. Thou shalt surely die. Which is interesting because from the very beginning of creation, God gave to man boundaries. Wasn't a real big one. Adam, you can eat everything out there. You see that one tree? Just that one? You can't have that one. Everything else you can have. That was his boundary. He could do anything he wanted, but not that one tree. By obeying God, man would demonstrate his love, respect, and faith. In his word. He believed God. By obeying, he believed God. By disobeying, he would reveal a breakdown in man's willingness to submit to God, revealing his lack of faith in God. The tree's fruit likely had no bitter taste of death. It was there to symbolize God's decree. God would then kill him. And that's where we're going to stop. I got it marked this where we stopped this afternoon because we talked too much. And so we have to stop there tonight as well. Whew. Let me just give you my disclaimer. What I shared with you are my thoughts. Does it mean they're conclusive? But as I look at these things, I'm really eager to hear if you have other ideas during the week or, or uh, after a service, share with them with me because I found them interesting. And... Um, and it's interesting, again, to see how powerful a God we have and understand that powerful God is our God. Can you imagine going to a tree and just eating life constantly? <laughs> Incredible. We're going to do that. We've got to pray. Dear Lord, thank you for your love. Thank you for the sweetness of studying your word. Thank you for the availability we have of the Holy Spirit teaching us your word. And I pray, Lord, that you might help us to continue to allow our minds to be expanded as to your greatness. Go with us this week. We love you. In Jesus' name, amen. God bless you.